reader, I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my Behind the Scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. Today, I am chatting with Carl Marlantis about Cold Victory. The stellar cover on this one caused me to pick it up, and the inside is every bit as good as the outside. I learned so much about Finland in the time period following World War II and was drawn into the characters' stories and lives. Carl graduated from Yale University and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University before serving as a Marine in Vietnam, where he was awarded the Navy Cross, the Bronze Star, two Navy Commendation Medals for Valor, two Purple Hearts, and 10 Air Medals. He is the best-selling author of Matterhorn and What It Is Like to Go to War. He lives in rural Washington. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Carl. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm good. Nice day, Northwest day. <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to chatting with you because I loved Cold Victory and my husband really loved it. He said it was the best book he has read in a very long time. Oh, that's nice to hear. Tell him thank you. Thank you to you. I certainly will. Such an interesting premise, and I can't wait to ask you all about it. Mm-hmm. Well, will you give me a quick synopsis of the book before we dive into my questions? Well, sure. It's set in Helsinki, Finland, uh, January, February 1947, when the Soviet Union is trying to get Finland into its orbit and America is trying to keep it from not getting there. And it's the two military attaches and their wives are the four principal characters. And uh, the two military attaches uh, are friends because they met on the Enns River just 18 months earlier when they were allies. And now the, the Russians or the Soviets are becoming the enemy, and the two wives are friends. And uh, the premise is that the the American, who is very go-get-em and smart, but totally naive, and she's hooked up with the Russian, who is very smart, but has lived through this very harsh Soviet system. And uh, I'm comparing sort of the the two ways of being in the world. It was, which was interesting is I started it before the Ukraine war broke out and it was right in the middle of it when the Ukraine war broke out. I went, holy moly, it's like it could be my book here. <laughs> exactly. And I wasn't that familiar with Finland's history in terms of being pushed and pulled around in World War II. I thought that was fascinating. And I noticed as I was reading the reviews today and I was getting ready for this interview that a lot of people said the same thing. 
Yeah, well, it's a tiny country. I mean, there's fewer Finns than there are people living in the state of Washington. And uh, and it was, it was a tragedy. I mean, they the Russians invaded them in 1939 and what the Finns called the Winter War. And the Russians got really slapped back hard. But the Finns got no help. I mean, the West wouldn't help them. Nobody would help them. And so finally, the Russian juggernaut just uh, overwhelmed them and they had to sue for peace. So there they are, and they lost 10% or 11% of their country. And and uh, then, then what ha- had to happen is that then Russia and Germany, who were allied when they started, they became enemies. And so Germany attacked Russia. So Finland joined with Germany. So the it's a very democratic country. It's just a Nordic country like any other. But the only way it could get its land back was to join with the Germans. And so they, they went back and then the then the Germans started getting defeated. And then the Russians came back and took back more land from the Finns. I mean, it's been a horrible sort of situation to be in. And they'd been that way as long as the Soviet Union was around. They could, you know, they could never upset the Soviet Union. So they had to be very careful totally democratic, aligned in every ideal with the West, but right on Russia's doorstep and had to always mind their P's and Q's. So it's similar to the situation Ukraine's in, and Ukraine has done this sort of the same thing, just the Russian bear got slapped down, but now that overwhelming size and, and not caring about what happens to your own soldiers, is it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation. The difference is so far, so far. Ukraine's got Western support, but I worry it's wavering. It does seem like it is wavering. But I think hopefully everyone learned their lesson the first go round. But yes, you mentioned Finland's location, and that did really make it something that the Soviet Union wanted to hold on to, but the West wanted to make sure that they kept it democratic, but weren't willing to step in. But I guess maybe the timing too, right after the war. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, Europe was flattened, and uh, so was Finland. Everybody was desperate, orphans everywhere, which is part of this, the novel. And um, just, you know, the Marshall Plan uh, got Europe back on its feet, but the Russians refused to let Finland accept Marshall Plan money. Uh, so they had to do it all, all on their own, which they did. You know, very tough people. Most definitely. Why did you decide to tell this story? I was struck, you know, like when, when Russia invaded the Ukraine in 2014, we just rolled over. And, you know, I'm a Marine. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> and I just I just felt like, don't you understand that, that you have to stand up to this or it's going to get worse? Well, it did get worse. And, we, and, uh, and I thought, you know, Americans are so naive about totalitarian systems because we we're very protected. Two oceans, you know, the neighbors are Canada and Mexico are totally friendly. We have no clue. Plus, we don't even know about foreign countries. I mean, it's it's astounding. I spent a lot of time overseas because I had an international consulting firm that it was just me. I was my, I owned it. But uh, how how totally ignorant Americans could be. And so I thought I want to write a, a novel that kind of illustrates this. And uh, one of the things that happened in my life that showed me that, that how 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 sort of protected we are and don't even know it was. Uh, I was in Kashmir and uh, a riot happened. And Kashmir is like 94% Muslim. And this is when the Ayatollah was stirring up all the Shiites. And so this riot broke out and they were burning things down. And I was staying with a Sikh family. So I put my kids under the 
table in the kitchen table and the Sikh gentleman put his family there with him, you know, rocks coming through the windows. And he and I, all we had were sticks, big sticks. And we went out on the porch and just sort of stood there with our sticks. And I, I turned to him and I said, where are the police? And he looked at me like I had come from Mars or something. He looked at me and he said, what? Carl, the police are Muslims. And that's when I first realized rule of law is supposed to be indifferent. But we're very lucky that so far rule of law has been just rule of law here. In other places, the law is a tool used to get what you want. And uh, as clearly it is in the Soviet Union or Russia today. Absolutely. And you mentioned being naive. And that was one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about because there's an American couple that comes in. Arnie and Louise. And Louise is so incredibly naive and you just want to shake her. I had to think about it for a while and be like, okay, hindsight is twenty twenty. I live now. I know what happened. I understand the way these countries were. But right after the war, the beginning of the Soviet Union, people just had no idea. She comes from Oklahoma, very protected existence. You don't have the internet, social media, you know, nothing in the papers yet. So it made more sense when I kind of put myself in her shoes. But initially I was like, Louise, get with it. <laughs> she needs to get with it because she sort of, you know, stands in for a lot of the things that are one of our national problems. And um, yeah, I, I, I worried that it was difficult to make her naive and not just sort of hate her for being stupid. But 1946, 47, I remember when Stalin died. Okay, I live in this little logging town. In Oregon, I remember the paper. It said, Uncle Joe dies. <laughs> Uncle Joe. That's the way. I mean, because Americans who really don't know much, uh, he was on our side in World War II. And the Red Army fought the Nazis with us. And Uncle Joe is one of the big three, Churchill, Roosevelt, and Joe Stalin. And Uncle Joe dies. It just burned into my head. I was probably about seven years old. Five. I don't know. It was 1952, I think. Seven. So... Uh, uh, yeah, Louise would certainly have been surprised at what was going on. And uh, I had people say, oh, she's too naive. No one's that naive. And I'm going like, you're naive about how naive we are. <laughs> so. Well, and especially during that time period. I mean, I think people are naive today. I agree with you completely. You watch what's happening here. It's getting really scary. But I think if you flash back to 47 and 46, you can totally get how naive she was and you just want to shake her and, and you wish they trained them a little better and said, OK, this is what you're going to encounter. This is what you're going to see. But I guess there was so much happening and they were trying to get people wherever they needed them to be. And there wasn't always time to do that. Well, there was that. And also there was, you know, the, 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 the women's movement hadn't quite taken off yet. They just, you know, they, they'd gotten the right to vote 20 years earlier or so. But. When it, so I, I was looking at it when the, the wives of diplomats uh, or military attaches were taught, here's, here's how you do protocol. Here's how you set the table, because that's what they were expected to do. And Louise, of course, wants to do more. And Arnie wants her to do more as well. But you didn't expect the wives to, to pitch in uh, other than uh, on the social side. That's what they did. Well, that's true, too. That, that's a very good point that they didn't expect her to be out and about doing some of the things that she does. Absolutely. You know, and, and we, we one of my sort of pet peeves is, is that you get movies and you get novels where you put have a, have a female character in the, like the 18th century with a 21st century um, sensibility. 
I mean, it, it, you know, it, it just doesn't doesn't work. I mean, you know, people thought men and women thought very differently about things 100 years ago. And uh, a friend of mine coined the phrase historical chauvinism. Somehow we think that we've got it right and we're smart and we know what's going on. And she said, you know, people back then were just the same. They're smart. They just they looked at things differently because of different circumstances. And I think his writers who do historical novels have in my opinion, should try to remember that if you're going to set a character in the 18th century, the character's got to have 18th century sensibilities. I agree completely. And that's exactly what I was saying, that initially I was like, Louise, but then I, I had to put myself in her actual shoes for that time period. And then I was like, of course, that's the way she's going to be. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. But I still wanted to shake her. I know. That's all right. <laughs> I, I have two female characters. I know from uh, Deep River who people say, God, she's she's you want to just shake her. She's 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 the most unlikable character since Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> <laughs> OK, that's pretty funny. <laughs> well, let's talk about the ski race. Where did that idea come from? That's an interesting how that came about. My uncle was a military attaché to Finland in the 1950s and a uh, fluent Finnish speaker. And uh, he was a career army officer, West Point, all that. And when he was in Helsinki, there was a military school, a high school, but it was a military academy. And they had an annual cross-country ski event uh, where all where the, the, the senior class of that high school did like a couple hundred kilometer cross-country skiing event. And they invited him to go along. And they also invited the military attaché from the Soviet Union. And it was just, a, it was just supposed to be this, you know, sort of outing and, you know, being nice to the, to the neighbors and all that stuff. But what happened when he was on that race, and he didn't know it happened, is that Finland could never criticize the Soviet Union. You couldn't put anything in the paper. You couldn't do anything without the Soviet Union just slamming them. So what happened is that the sports people picked up on the race and it turned into America and the West versus the Soviet Union and totalitarianism. And uh, but it was all just describing this. And they described it as a race. It wasn't a race. They were just supposed to be along for the, you know, the, the, the enjoyment of this cross country escapade. Well, it turned out that uh, my uncle came in way ahead of, of the Russian. And by the time he got to the finish line several days later, it had been all over Finland. He had no idea. And he said when he crossed the finish line, there was a couple of big black Russian cars. And the military attaché from Russia was put into one of the cars and he said he never saw him again. And so I went, wow, that's a great story. And that's how I got the nubbin of the idea of the ski race. I was so curious if it was something you had completely invented or if there was some actual event that you had based it on. I love learning that. Yeah. Though it's sad, the ending. And I don't want to spoil anything on your book. But as I was reading, I was like, oh, I, I just kind of went back and forth between wanting the ending to be realistic and wanting the ending to go a different <laughs> direction. And I, I, I'm glad you did what you did. But, oh. Well, you know, I, it, again, it, you know, the the happy ending, the sad ending, it's its a novels have to deal with that because, you know, it, you don't want people like in a movie walking out of the movie theater with a downer. I mean, on the other hand, reality sometimes a downer. So I'm not going to say which way it went because that, that is what do they call it, a spoiler. Yeah. Right. But you do want it to be realistic. So that's all I'll say is that that it did land there. But I was like, oh, so well, what surprised you the most when you were writing this one? I think that how much empathy, sympathy I had for the Russian people. 
I mean, they are as trapped as, as anybody. I mean, you know, the, the, the Russians who are fighting in Ukraine are totally ignorant and they're, they're dying there and they're just kids that get drafted. Also, the, the, the paranoia of then Soviet Union and later Russia, they get invaded through Poland, through the, the, through Ukraine, through the Baltics, you know, at least, you know, every century and it's terrible. And so they, so when you think about, you know, well, it's, they're, they're, um, you know, just, just expanding their empire. Well, there's, there's incredibly important defensive reasons for expanding that, which is to give them time to fight back. And so people have to go through Poland. Doesn't excuse what they're doing. And it's also, there's a, it's a whole new world. If they just, if they just wanted to play ball and, and obey the rules of the international order right now, they wouldn't even be in a war and they would be completely safe. NATO does not want to attack the Soviet Union. I think the only people that will probably might want to is the Chinese to take back the land that the Russians took from the Chinese in the 19th century. I have a, a sense of, I understand where this is coming from and how the Russian people can be beguiled into an invasion of a neighbor like Ukraine because of this long history of, we always have to protect our borders with depth. There's no rivers, there's no mountains. I mean, it's a big flat plain and uh, tanks roll across it real easy. So I think that's what surprised me is like, oh, you know, I kind of get it. I can get why they go along with it, but they're being, you know, they're being fooled and Putin's being a war criminal. He's got us to be stopped. Just that I, I understand the other side a little bit better. That's interesting. And I felt that I understood some of them, like Mikhail and his wife, Natalia, you feel for them, but their nanny who's reporting on them and, you know, following them everywhere and giving them no peace. Like, I didn't feel any sympathy for her. No, you don't, because uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and totalitarianism doesn't work without cohorts. Right. I mean, one person can't do what Putin does. One per Putin plus a whole bunch of helpers. The same with, you know, Hitler or any of these other people. No, people cave. And the not only they cave, they salute. I mean, it's like something in us, a, a genetic flaw or something that you, they, what do they call it, the strong man on the horse. And I think that she um, just represents that kind of person. She's doing what she, she's getting along to get along. And, and she'd probably get, get a better job if she works with the uh, NKVD. Uh, and uh, there are, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people like that. And they're here in America too. I mean, you know, I mean, do we get political on this show? But <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yes, I, I do agree with you. Absolutely. I think those people are everywhere. And I think that is what is so scary. Yeah, no, I, I do agree with you. But it's just so frustrating. But I did really feel for some of them, and as you're just listening to everything unfold, or actually, I guess, reading everything and seeing it unfold, I just, oh, my heart went out to them. And, and to know you're being watched, like that part, I thought you really represented so well through Natalia, like she knows this is happening and she has to be so careful every movement. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, I, I try not to be didactic. I think, if, you know, if there's anything that I hate is didactic novels saying, here, I want you to learn this lesson. But that kind of loss of privacy, we're doing it to ourselves. And, and it's, it, it, it'll just gnaw away at the fabric of relationships. If eventually, you know, the, the, the little robot that, the, you know, you say, hey, Siri, and it answers you is listening to what you're doing. I, I mean, you know, that's, that sort of gets into crazy conspiracy stuff, but less and less privacy is happening. 
and it's not some totalitarian person doing it. It's us. We're just, we're doing it because it's easy. You know, it's like, oh, convenient, click. You know, but I think that we can fall into a loss of privacy uh, very easily. And I think that that would be very damaging. Like you said, uh, how uncomfortable it is to always watch your tongue. The second thing is we we have to watch our tongue because, uh, you know, you don't know anymore what's acceptable or not acceptable. Short of, you know, wishing violence on people, opinions should be acceptable. That's that's the old-fashioned liberal view. That isn't with us anymore. We we no longer have the, the that view that every opinion should be voiced. We got to hang on to the values that we founded this country on. And we're we're just, you know, watching Netflix and, you know, you know, and we have we have a very beautiful, popular singer as the Time Magazine Person of the Year. I'm going like, you know, there's other things going on, you know, besides football and rock uh, concerts, you know. Yeah. I agree with that. But I also think that it's been such a rough year that sometimes it's nice to celebrate those just everyday things that people have enjoyed for a long time. You know, that it's just nice to not have every single thing be political. But I do understand what you're saying. But I do also enjoy the break from the constant political talk and everything you were just describing. There was a fascinating book that came out in October called The Hank Show. And it is about the man, um, Hank Asher, who first started accumulating all of our data long before social media and the internet. And it's so fascinating, like going down that road and, and how our data is out there and all of this stuff on us, even before you get to the listening in and providing your information to people. So yes, definitely loss of privacy is going to be a massive, I mean, it already is a problem and it's just yeah. going to get bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. But tell me back to the Cold War. Why do you think the Cold War is so intriguing to people? A huge percentage of the population grew up with with that sort of sort of Damocles hanging over our heads, which now is once again made obvious. Uh, nuclear holocaust is possible. And the Cold War was what made it more likely. So that's, it was very important, you know. And I think the other thing that was a very important thing about the Cold War is that it really was a value system. I mean, let people choose what they want to do and let the market decide how things are going. It has its flaws, as we know, versus just totally regulated, totally controlled. Well, that system collapsed uh, after 50 years. I mean, you know, people could say that the West won the Cold War. And I think that it, that is true, that our values uh, came through. And that's something to celebrate. So there's this sort of growing up with this threat, which is very real and magnified by the antagonism between the West and the Soviet Union, which went away, but now seems to have come back again with, you know, Putin, you know, trying to scare us off of Ukraine by nuclear threats. That's why I think the Cold War is so important. I also think that it gave everybody a very clear bad guy. Like Russia was the enemy and it was very easy to say, okay, the Russians are the bad guys, we're the good guys. And I think it's harder to figure out today who are the bad guys, who are the good guys. Obviously, Putin is a bad guy. But I'm yeah. just saying, as you look at the world broader than that, I think it's difficult sometimes to to have clear enemies, clear good and bad. Well, you know, uh, yes. And it, and it, it it, it, during the Cold War, it went too far the other way. It's like, you know, there was a communist under everybody's bed. And, uh, you know, you had the McCarthy hearings and just terrible uh, American, supposed un-American activities committee from in the Congress. So 
this this thing about the enemy can get away from you because like I was saying, the people in Russia had nothing to do with the Soviet Union's foreign policy. And today they have nothing to do with Putin's foreign policy. And and I agree totally. When I grew up, it was like, first, first of all, it was Nazis, right? Because all my old, my father's generation were all fighting in World War II. But then by the mid fifties and early sixties, it was, you know, all the spy novels were about the Russians and I mean, Jean Le Carre and uh, you know, wonderful stuff, but they, the Russians were always, you know, <laughs> the antagonists. Always, you know, and that's just so interesting when you look at that window of time, because that is always who was the bad guy. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we, again, we it's a tendency to be just very simplistic. Right. You know, and not, not actually see the other side as human. I've been in a war and I understand how that happens, but when your political leaders start doing that, you're heading down a bad path. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. On a happier note, I would love to hear a little bit about your title and cover. I am a huge cover person, and that's actually what led me to grab your book. I was at a conference in October, and I looked over and I was like, oh my gosh, that cover. And so I went over and grabbed it, and I was like, well, that looks good. So I ended up taking it with me, but it's just stunning. Do you love it? I love it. Yeah, I, the Arctic, uh, the Northern Lights, and the single skier, and the vastness of it all. It was Grove did a great job with that, and and uh, I was very very pleased. And the the Cold Victory uh, title is is because yes, I mean it's a there's a victory involved, and 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 somebody has to win, but in the end, uh, it's not something that you want to celebrate. Um, and, and that's why I entitled it Cold Victory. I thought the title was really representative of the book. Was that always the title when you were writing it? Was it Cold Victory or did you come up with that later on? I came up with that later on. When I, when I did the first drafts, I called it The Winner, which again, uh, that's that, that ironic title, The Winner. What did, you know, what did they win? But then some a friend of mine said, God, that's terrible. You know? <laughs> You're like, thank you. Be honest. You're an author. It's just like, you got to have a pretty thick skin, you know, especially. And if you got good friends, they'll let you have it. You know, it's like a stupid title. No one will know what that means. And I won't even imagine trying to name a movie, the winner. I mean, they'll think it's about, you know, NFL. (laughs) (laughs) That is hilarious. Yeah. So you're like, okay, round two. I'm going to try cold victory. (laughs) I'm very happy with the title. Yeah. I like the title too, but that's pretty funny. Hmm. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Now I'm reading um, Roger Penrose's uh, Road to Reality. It's a little bit sort of, I'm taking it a, a page or two, sort of like reading Proust, a page or two at a time. But he he un, he, he lays out the mathematics and, and the discovery of the mathematics that uh, explains the reality that we live in. I mean, you know, the... the 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 biggest obvious one is is non-Euclidean geometry, which is that you know space is curved. I mean, you know, but they had to invent that geometry before the physicists could describe what in fact is the reality of of space time. Uh, it curves, uh, and uh, so that's been fascinating. And then, uh, and I just finished Claire Keegan's uh, Small Things Like These, and then I picked up Foster. Uh, she writes these gems. Uh, I mean, they're almost like short stories, but but they're they're a complete novel and very 
almost poetic. I mean, she is just a really, really tasty writer. And I, I had never even heard of her. And a friend of mine turned me on to her. And then I've, I've just finished uh, Kristen Hanna, which is an, an, another writer. Of course, I've heard of her, but I've never read anything by her because I just thought, well, she just, you know, not my genre. And uh, she wrote a book called Women. And it's uh, based on a, a woman who's an army nurse who I know. And uh, she's the one that started the um, nurse's uh, statue at the Vietnam Memorial, Diane Evans. And uh, it's just a really good look at what the life of, of uh, army nurses were like in, in Vietnam. And uh, I, I found it really, it's well written and she gets into the characters very well. She interviewed Diane extensively. And so she's got a good solid sense of reality on it. And uh, it's titled The Women. I have it sitting by my bedside table and I need to get to it, but it's so big <laughs> and I just haven't yet. But you spent time in Vietnam, right? You fought there. So reading that book? Yeah, I did. I uh, I was a Marine and uh, yeah, I was there 13 months. Yeah. I mean, the, the book, I, I, I liked reading the book because the nurses, you know, were unbelievably important to the wounded boys. And people don't understand how young Marines especially are, but Army infantry. The average age in my platoon was 18 and 10 months. That's the average. I did it one day. I just started just for fun. 18 and 10 months. They're 17-year-olds. And when they get shot and wounded, they want some women, you know, to give them care. I mean, it's, of course you need to have the wounds healed, but just these nurses were, I mean, to keep pouring out that compassion for their wounded when they're just overwhelmed with wounded, you know, helicopters full of them coming in. And how, how do you maintain that? I mean, that's, that's their own heroic struggle, which tends to, you know, get lost. And uh, I think that uh, she's chosen a nice subject here because it shouldn't be lost. Even though, you know, there weren't very many nurses, Navy and Army nurses, uh, they obviously played an incredibly important part in that war and all wars. So the book, uh, I think, explores what it was like and uh, wasn't all roses, that's for sure. Oh, gosh, I can't even imagine much of it was roses. I have an 18-year-old son, and I just cannot even fathom him heading out to war right now. Like, that's just, it's mind-boggling. And I know we're in a different time and all of that, but still, I just couldn't even imagine. But yes, I do need to read that. I just have to kind of gear up because it sounds <laughs> like it's a, it's really intense. Her last book, The Four Winds, about the Dust Bowl, is phenomenal if you're interested in that topic at all. Oh, really? Yeah, I haven't read it. Yeah. Well, Carl, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. I really did enjoy Cold Victory. And our chat has been delightful. No, it's good. Thanks. Very nice. It's very nice talking with you, too. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, 
parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts from a Page. If you enjoy this show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts from a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, nerds. book Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.